I reckon this Easter is going to be one that none of us forget, right? Uh, Even though we may want to. Uh, This is the holiday, not holiday, right? We've got some disappointment with plans. This is where homes are starting to feel like a cage. This is the time where toilet paper has become our most prized possession. But most particularly, this is a time when suffering is mounting up around us. And not just around us, but pushing in on us and entering into our lives. It feels like we've woken up in an apocalyptic movie. In fact, I heard an ABC journalist just rattle off the horrors of 2020 so far, which is not even a quarter of the way through. Fires, drought, floods, now coronavirus. And he concluded with this statement that 2020 is a year that God has forgotten. And I reckon that many people would agree with him. In fact, I think people would go more. This is not just a year that God has forgotten. This is a world that he's forgotten. Or 2020, what we are seeing is evidence that there cannot be a God who loves. And yet, here we are as Christians, as has been said, along with all Christians around the world and down through the ages who are at this moment today celebrating. And not because we are unaware or unaffected by that great suffering, but because we have a message of hope for a world that is drowning in need. That that message has come to our ears and it has transformed our lives. And so amongst all of the need and the suffering, we can pause and we can declare with great joy, even with tears, God is there. God is good. God knows our need. As has been said, that's the theme that we'd chosen to run with for this series Uh, a bunch of weeks ago, actually, months before the pandemic. And so it's a very fitting headline for us to consider these events under. Here's my plan. Uh, To take the next few moments just to push into what does it mean that God knows our need? And I want to do it in three steps where we get deeper and more profound as we go through them. Number one, God knows about our need. Many people who aren't familiar with the Bible think that it's a book full of just fluffy, proverbial religious sayings, or maybe a rule book that some people work really hard to keep so they can look down their nose at others and feel better than everyone else. But when you pick up this book, and I invite you to do it if you haven't, when you, when you start to read it, you realise it's the most earthy, grounded book that you could come across. The Bible lives in the real world and therefore the Bible is familiar with suffering. It doesn't deny it, it doesn't try and diminish it, which actually sets it apart from other religions and views of the world. See, take Buddhism. Uh, At the very bottom, in Buddhism, suffering is actually a grand illusion since the very concept of personhood is an illusion. And so what's the answer at the bottom to suffering? Well, it's detachment. Remove yourself from desire, remove yourself from personhood, remove yourself from suffering. Or what about secularism? The the view of the world that it's a closed system, that there is a natural realm but no reality above that, no supernatural realm. 
Well, if that's the case, then what we call the evil of the coronavirus is hard to justify because really it's just a part of a world that's here by random chance, evolutionary processes. And so what we call evil suffering just is. It's just a part of the world that we find ourselves in. But here's the thing about Christianity. It doesn't do any of those things. It doesn't try and deny that it exists. It says, this is a broken world. It uses the language of frustration. This, this creation is frustrated. It's enslaved to bondage. It's groaning. It doesn't try and deny that it exists. And it doesn't try and make peace with it. Just accept it. It says, it is right that we would cry out that the world is not as it should be. And more than that, Christianity says, it is right that we should cry out to God of our need and distress. That's exactly what's going on in Psalm 22 that Beck just read for us. Words given to us by God in the Bible to give voice to our experience of living in this broken world. Now, a little bit of context about these words. It comes to us in the Old Testament. Basically, the Bible is divided into two halves, Old Testament and New Testament. And these words are written some 1,000 years before the time of Jesus by a man named David, who's a really key figure in the Bible. Uh, David was the first honourable king of the ancient nation of Israel, which was God's people. Therefore, here's the thing about David. God had actually taken David and made him his king over his nation to rule on his behalf. Now, if that's the case for David, then you'd expect that life would be pretty sweet if he's God's man, after all. You know, it's a bit like the, the kid of the Telstra CEO having pretty sweet internet. That's what you'd expect him to have, which is what makes this psalm so striking. Because we read there, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? I cry out to you, but I hear no answer. Here is a man who is wrestling with the distance of God, the silence of God. And it's key to notice that this is no atheist, this is no skeptic going, is there a God? Is there a God? Surely not, he would have. This is a man of deep faith. My God. My God that, that I believe in, my God, verse 4, that, um, that, that I've trusted in, that, that I've trusted in, verse 9, from the womb. My God who has been the God of my ancestors and delivered, where are you now? Here is a man who is wrestling with the difference between the expectations of his faith and the reality of his experience. I think this brings out our deepest angst when, when our firm convictions about what we believe about the world are shown to play out very differently in our life in the world. Here's a man whose life is on the line. If you've got your Bibles there, have a look at it. verse 12. He describes many bulls surrounding him, strong bulls. Verse 13, roaring lions open their mouths wide against him. Verse 16, dogs surround him. Not the fluffy cavoodle type, right? Verse 29, wild oxen are about to put their horns through him. And you kind of find yourself wondering, 
where are you, David? <laughs> like, has he fallen into a cage at the zoo? Like, is this a scene from Tiger King? What's going on? Well, before David became king of Israel, he was a shepherd. And what he's doing is drawing on his experience in the fields and using metaphor to poetically describe the great suffering that he's facing. And amongst all of this suffering is that loud question, where is God when I need him? Uh, Why has he let this happen? These are questions that many people are asking right now in this moment. And here's something hugely helpful for us to realise. They're not new questions. It can feel as though we are facing something that humanity has never faced. No. All the way back, there have been people who have wrestled with suffering, Where is God? And the Bible, the Bible of all places, brings this wrestling, these complaints of people to us. And by God actually putting these words in the Bible, he gives us permission to voice the same complaints even to him. Questions, doubts. God, where are you? This is hard. This sucks. Christianity is not for people who have it all together. Christianity is not for people who have the squeaky, clean and comfortable lives, who have some kind of you know, immunity around them that would stop any hard thing happening for them. No, no, no. The Bible is for people who live in the real world. The Bible is for those who would cry out to God in suffering, who sees it who hears it, who knows about it. There's the first thing we can say about God knowing our need. He does know about it. He hasn't fallen asleep on a heavenly couch. He sees, he cares of our need in a groaning world. Here's the second dimension and level of God knowing our need, and this is where it gets mind-blowing. God personally knows our need. See, God doesn't just know about our need because he's the almighty eye in the sky and nothing gets past him. No, no, no. He knows it because he's entered into it personally. Because these words that were first on the lips of David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, then find themselves on the lips of Jesus 1,000 years later. Now, this is staggering for at least two reasons. Number one, because of the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, we know more about David than any other figure of his time. Uh, The Bible has a number of independent historical accounts of the life and experiences of David. And here's the thing. David found himself in trouble quite a few times, even running for his life. But at no point do we find a situation described which matches his language found in Psalm 22. What we find in Psalm 22, yes, is poetic expression to his suffering, but there's exaggerated details that never historically come true in his life until 1,000 years later, a descendant of David, Jesus, arrives. 
where we find this striking anticipation in Psalm 22 and fulfilment recorded by the eyewitnesses who wrote the gospel accounts. Let me take you through some of those striking details that the gospel writers said, look at this. See, in Psalm 22, verse 7, David was mocked by all. In the gospel account of Matthew, we read that the soldiers mocked Jesus, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! David speaks of his hands and feet being pierced. When did that ever happen to David? It didn't. But in Matthew, the soldiers led Jesus away to crucify him, which involved driving nails through his hands and his feet. Psalm 22, verse 18, David's clothes were divided up by lot. When they had crucified Jesus, the soldiers divided up his clothes by casting lot. Back in the psalm, people hurled insults at David and shook their heads. The eyewitnesses tell us that those who passed by Jesus hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. David was taunted, let the Lord deliver him since he delights in him. Verse 43 of Matthew, the Jewish leader said, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And as David cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One thousand years later, on a Friday, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right here is one of the most powerful pieces of evidence for why Christianity is connecting you with truth. It's connecting you with the one true God who is. Because Over and over again in the Old Testament, centuries before the time of Jesus, God speaks promises. Things that maybe are fulfilled in part as you keep reading, but never in full until Jesus comes. And the New Testament concern is to show us, look at who Jesus is. The one that God had promised over and over again. There's promises about the place of Jesus' birth, the nature of his birth, the details around his death as we see here, all fulfilled in history. It's staggering because of the prophetic fulfilment, a key piece of evidence to push into to work out if Christianity is telling the truth. But here's the second reason this is staggering. And it's because of who Jesus is. There's a story which I really like that comes out of Detroit in the 1930s. And the story is of three men who get on a bus at night. And and there's not many people on the bus except there's this one lone figure sitting all the way up the back, just minding his own business, hoodie on. Uh, These three guys, well, they're looking for a bit of fun. They're looking for a fight. And so they go up to this guy and start provoking him, uh, wanting to get into a fight with him, but he just sits there and ignores them. Then when it came time for this guy to get off the bus, he stands up and he's a whole lot bigger 
than they'd expected, than they'd realised. And before hopping off the bus, he hands them a business card. Off he gets, the bus drives off. These three young men gather around the business card to read on it, Joe Lewis, boxer. Now, if you're sitting there going, so? (laughs) That's possibly because you're young and or don't care about sport. Here's the deal. These three young men had just tried to pick a fight with the world heavyweight boxing champion. The number one. The man who had enough power in one punch to kill. Talk about a horrible case of mistaken identity. What they took just to be a hooded ordinary dude was a man who could have killed them with one punch. Don't make the same mistake with Jesus. See, in one sense, what we're remembering today, the historical event of today is so ordinary, really. You know, we're sensitive to the gory details because it's not part of our you know, daily life. But 2,000 years ago, Romans executing a man to you know, send a, a strong word that Rome is the power. Jesus was not the first to be crucified. He wasn't the last. And yet, as ordinary as that scene may have appeared, things could not have been more extraordinary. Because the God who had brought all creation into being by speaking a powerful word was nailed to a cross crying out in anguish. Think about that. The almighty, infinite, eternal God is there bound to a cross. Why? Well, we'll come to that. But firstly, hear this. If you've ever doubted that God could understand your suffering, you only need to look to Jesus. This is God among us. And when he came, he didn't come with some divine vaccine that would shield him from any of the pain that we experience in this world. No, no, no. He grew up as a child and so would have fallen over and skinned his knees. He would have known the nastiness of the schoolyard or his equivalent of it. He went through that awkward, confusing, hard process from becoming a child to an adult. We definitely know that he knows the sting of losing loved ones. He wept by the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus. We know that he was rejected by his own close community in his hometown. You're a nut, Jesus. In fact, even his family shared in thinking that he was crazy. He was brought before the justice system that was designed to deliver justice and all he got was injustice. And then even his closest friends who had promised to go to death with him abandoned him. But then finally, he was hung on a cross. This is the almighty God. This is the God 
who knows what it is to be us personally. This is captured in a a great poem that was written by a pastor some 100 years ago, a pastor who had witnessed the horrors of World War I. I'll read the last stanza. The other gods were strong, but you were weak, Jesus. They rode, but you did stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but you alone. God didn't just dip his toe into our lot. Like my wife, if we go to the beach and it's cold, she'll dip her toe in and say, yeah, I went swimming. God didn't just dip his toe in, he plunged himself into the icy brokenness of our world and it drowned him. We do not have a God who is unable to empathise with our need. He knows it personally. What a great comfort that is, that we have a God that we can cry out to and he can say, I know, I know, it hurts, it's hard, I know. But we need more than just empathy, don't we? Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, Well, up until recently, he knew about coronavirus, didn't he? Uh, He had all the medical experts briefing him on all the details as he sought to lead his country through the crisis of the virus. But now he knows coronavirus in a whole new way. He knows it personally from the bed of an ICU unit. And we pray that he would continue to recover. It is the case that he would be able to sit alongside, if they would let him, another patient suffering under COVID-19, gasping for breath, and he would be able to hold their hand and say, I know, I know. And that would be a great comfort, wouldn't it? But what does that patient need more than just an understanding here? That patient needs to be saved, to be rescued which takes us to the third and deepest level of what it means that God knows our need, because it's this. He knows our greatest need and has met it. See, if Jesus really is who the Bible is is claiming that he is, he's the eternal son of God come in the flesh, the only man to have lived perfectly before God, to to have worshipped him with his whole mind, with his whole soul, with his whole strength, then why is this one perfect God-man crying of God-forsakenness on the cross? Well, the, the select details that the eyewitnesses give us help us here in Matthew 27. There's a whole bunch of other details they could have recorded and so what they do give us is significant. And we read Matthew 27 verse 45. 
that from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Then Jesus goes out to cry of God forsakenness. In the Bible, darkness is repeatedly a symbol of God's judgment. Repeatedly a symbol of a spiritual judgment that God is pouring out. So that at that first Easter, the light of the sun was hidden in the natural realm to reflect somewhat what was happening in the spiritual realm. And it was horrific. See, this is where we need the Bible to not just describe the events of the cross, but to give us the significance of them. There is some level of pain well beyond the physical pain. Notice Jesus doesn't cry out, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, but rather, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His cry is a window into the horror his soul experienced as something foreign entered his relationship with his father. As the curse of human sin was now laid upon him. Having only ever known perfect, intimate relationship with his father, he now experiences the horror of hell. Separation from the blessing of God, punishment under the judgment of God. Why? Why is God doing this to his son? Why is the son taking this from his father? Well, because he was dying as a substitute. Not for his own sin, do you see, but for the sin of humanity. For our sin, for my sin. For the sin of having substituted God with ourselves. For having taken what is rightly only God's and claimed that for ourselves. What's that? Well, rule of my life. Independence, autonomy, the ability to call the shots. We've substituted what rightly belongs only to God and said, I'll sit on the throne of my life. Thank you very much. Yes, we can do that in a way that we tell ourselves is very respectable. Where we can look at each other and go, you're a good person, you're a good person, but we have dethroned the God of the universe. But here's the staggering thing about Easter. God substitutes himself with us. And he takes what only we deserve, judgment. He takes the punishment for our sin upon himself and he takes it fully and finally so that there would be nothing left for us to face. Wow. We may well ask the question, where is God in this pandemic? Where is God in a world full of need? And for all the arguments that could be mounted rationally, reasonably, all the philosophical objections that could be spoken to, the clearest, loudest word that can be given is the word of the cross. That God has so loved the world. Put your name in there. That God has so loved that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life here is the deepest 
level of what it means for God to have known our greatest need and to have met it. Our greatest need is forgiveness. Forgiveness. To to be restored into relationship with God, not because we can try and clean ourselves up and do a good enough job and impress him and have the good outweigh the bad. No hope. But by receiving what God has done for us in Jesus, looking to him as our saviour and being restored into relationship with God. If there's one thing about this coronavirus, I think it's brought us back to what we really were made for, and that's relationship. Relationship. There's a whole bunch of pain going on around right now. Jobs that have been lost. Health that has been impacted. Hobbies and holidays that we can't get to. The deepest grief that I see amongst people is the grief of having lost our relationships. Not necessarily because loved ones have died, but we've lost the ability to relate fully, haven't we? We long for connection together with more than just two people or the people in our homes and some of us can't wait to meet with people beyond our own home. Some of us are all on our own with no one in our homes. And all of a sudden this idea of home isolation which sounded like a holiday feels like a prison sentence. Not because we don't have anything to do. There's a bottomless pit of Netflix but so what? And those ISO projects that you can get to that you haven't been up to, but you can't see your grandkids? So what? This has driven home to us what we ought never have forgotten. We were made for relationship. We have enjoyed such a time of prosperity, of peace, of health, that we've been able to get so consumed with so many other things at the cost of relationships This is bringing us back to we were made for relationship. But as much as we were made for relationships with each other and we're feeling that, you, me, were made for relationship with your God. Not just to know about him, but to know him and to be known by him in a personal relationship. This is is what the events of Easter, the message of Christianity, is about. Being reunited with your God. Do you know that? Do you know God as your God in this moment? This is so critical for us because whether it's coronavirus soon or something else later, none of us are immune to death. The other thing this crisis has highlighted to us, it's coming and it may come sooner than we'd imagined. And here's the thing, death becomes a doorway to standing before your maker. Just the two of you. Where he will ask you, me, all of us that he has given life to give an account of the way that we have lived it. What are you basing your confidence on for that day going well? 
because Jesus makes it super clear. If you are confident in anything or anyone other than him and his work on the cross, you can be sure that you will be God-forsaken into eternity. Because it is only those who have been restored into relationship through forgiveness, through trusting in Jesus, that will be received warmly into his presence. I don't know where you're at, but what an opportunity like back last Easter, for you today to consider how that moment will go when you stand before God, to consider it honestly, and to grab hold of the invitation and the gift that he is giving to you right now. I mean, that gift was one, was packaged 2,000 years ago. It is being offered to you today whilst you have breath. Why wouldn't you take it? God has given you another day that you might be restored to him. For those of us who have, who have humbled ourselves to admit, I can't do it. I have no hope. The things that I thought might save me around me have been proved to be a fraud. It's like living in a Lego city that my kids have made. It's crumbling. For those of us who have recognised that and who have reached out to a saviour, know the comfort afresh this Easter that God is with you, that God is for you and that he has not and will never forsake you. Not now in any suffering, not at the point of death, and not into the new creation that he has promised is coming that will have no more sin, no more sickness, no more virus, no more mourning, no more death. And if you're wondering, is that really true? Well, then stay tuned for the second half of Psalm 22 and the event that we'll remember on Sunday. Because, friends, God has given us all that we need to know that he's there, that he's good. And and though we might be in the dark as to why the particulars of suffering are happening to us, we're not in the dark about God. Look to the cross. It's where he demonstrates his love for us. Which is why, despite all the very real suffering around us, Christians today and every day can celebrate, can have peace, and comfort because the message of Jesus is the most need meeting, hope giving, life changing news you could ever come across. And I pray that it would be life changing for you today, for every day that He would give us. Let me pray. Well, Father, what, a, what an amazing thing that we can address you as Father, not a distant God, but a heavenly Father all through the person and work of your son, Jesus. I want to ask, Father, that for those right now whose faith is rattled, who are doubting that you are there and that you are good, that you might please work powerfully to show them that in the cross of Jesus, you are good. You have not changed. You are still good. For those who are considering these things, I want to ask, please, Lord, that you would enable them to pursue truth, 
and that as Jesus says, the truth would set them free. And for those of us who know you, who are clinging to you by faith, sustain our faith, increase our joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's at this point that every Good Friday we would take communion together. And so uh, things are quite different for us, obviously, and uh, we've decided not to try and attempt to do communion remotely or online because it would miss what communion is about, Uh, that it is about the Lord's people gathered together around Jesus, uh, able to physically, tangibly partake together Symbols that point us to the work of the cross. And so, though we won't be participating in the Lord's Supper today, we can pause and reflect on the gift of the gospel through prayer. So I want to invite you uh, to to continue to pray with me. I don't know how the lounge room setting's going for you, uh, but, but do your best to reflect together It's not taking the bread and juice together. We long for the day when we'll be back together to be able to do it. But let's reflect on something of what we would be doing in that moment. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for this word that you have just spoken to us. The word of your son that is living and breathing and active We thank you for the word of your son, who though he knew no sin, he became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you for the gift of escaping the curse as lawbreakers, for Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse. We thank you, therefore, for the invitation from Jesus himself to come to him. As he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We pause for a moment to reflect on that rest, that deep rest that is in you, Jesus. Lord God, we are not worthy to receive this gift that you have given us. We've failed to do what we ought to do and so often we have left undone what should be done. We are sorry. Please forgive us. Thank you for that first Easter. Thank you for your son 
dying in our place, drinking the cup of your wrath on our behalf. Thank you that you loved us so much that you would do it for us, that you would call us out of darkness into your amazing light. While we remain in prayer, let me remind you of these great truths. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. Father, we thank you. Please fill us with all joy and peace in believing. Help the truth of this new life fill us with a kind of security, certainty, hope and joy that can come only by receiving your gift. And would you help us to now live differently, to live as those who truly are forgiven, who truly know you, who have the hope of eternal life. Please do this in your strength, under your rule, seeking now to love and serve the world around us, particularly in this great moment of need. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.